is welcome to the second uh, seminar uh, organized by the Extra-Legal Governance Institute and the Department of Sociology. I'm still the same person as last week, Federico Varese, uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce Professor Zheng, uh, Tian Tian Zheng. Uh, Tian Tian is an assistant professor of anthropology at the State University of New York. Uh, State University of New York at Scotland. Now, I read uh, uh, her book, uh, which is called The Red Lights, and it's uh, an ethnography of karaoke bars in China, in a city called Dalian. Uh, and uh, when I read it, I thought it was quite an extraordinary piece of research, because she has done uh, um, participant observation, I suppose. She has worked in karaoke bars in this city, which, as far as I understand, is your hometown. And um, she has also gone not just to one of them, but to three of this type of bars. So in a sense, she has stratified by the, the quality of this uh, establishment, the high class, low class, and the lower class. Um, I, I think this is really uh, an unusual. And uh, to my knowledge, I haven't seen anything like that before. And I have an interest in this kind of work because I do something similar. But I don't think I've ever gone as far. Um, now, she, she has got uh, a PhD from Yale University, which is where she did, uh, she, she was affiliated to Yale when she did this field work. And so um, that was a home institution. And she's originally from China. If you read her book, you will also have an insight into her biography and um, somehow her development uh, as a person, not just uh, as a scholar through this work. So without further ado, um, you the floor. Thank you for coming all the way from New York State. Thank you. Okay, sure. I want to first uh, thank Dr. Federico for inviting me here. And that, uh, also thank Liz for arranging all this uh, uh, treatment details um, and so on. And thank you all for coming. In this talk, I'll first discuss how I conducted the research. And then I'll delve more into the book later. In 1999, I set out with a general interest in China's migrant population and social inequality, with a focus on migrant women factory workers. Research in an embroidery factory allowed me to witness female workers' confinement within the factory walls, long hours, and strict working rules. During this time, I visited different departments of the municipal government and set up appointments with a number of officials. To obtain their support for my research, I sought to establish friendships with them before proceeding with interviews. In the course of several rounds of gift giving, they became friends. In the months to follow, each of them gradually introduced me to a web of their friends who were police officers, entrepreneurs, nouveau rich, and other official colleagues. It is these people who form the major clientele base discussed in this book. One evening, I was invited by an official to a karaoke bar where I encountered bar hostesses for the first time. The official told me that most of the hostesses came from rural areas. I was fascinated by these women's glamorous appearances and their full exposure to the high consumption arenas in the city as compared with the poverty-stricken lives of women factory workers. Watching them socialize in this, their workplaces with important figures in the city, I was eager to learn about their opportunities for climbing the social ladder. With these questions in mind, I decided to switch the focus of my research to the hostesses. 
karaoke bars are consumption outlets. They are condemned and eradicated from the communist landscape as emblems of non-proletarian and decadent bourgeois lifestyle. In the post-socialist era, nightclubs reappeared. They were referred to as karaoke bars, whose patrons were mainly middle-aged government officials, businessmen, policemen, and foreign investors. They partake of the services provided and offered by hostesses, and at the same time engage in male-centered world of politics and business. The hostesses accompany them in alcohol consumption, dancing, and singing, and sometimes offer sexual services for additional fee. These women, mainly 17 to 23 years of age, form the steadily growing contingent of illegal sex workers. When I told my official friend about this research plan, I was suspected, suspected of being a spy sent from the United States. I was warned not to pursue this topic because of its political sensitivity. I was told that the study of prostitution as a capitalist vice discloses a dark secret of socialist China. As a result, China's reputation in the world will be ruined. I was also warned that government officials' corruption and decadent lies are an essential component of the phenomenon of prostitution. Thus, they argued, a study of prostitution could jeopardize the image of the Chinese Communist Party in the world. The study could also disrupt the superior socialist morality that China has endeavored to construct in the world. So whether I was going to conduct the research or not would decide whether I was a patriot or a traitor, it was implied. Apart from the political issues, other friends also warned me of the physical risks and psychological travail involved in such research. Fully informed of the risks and possible impediments, I embarked on my, on my research on the hostesses. As expected, my initial research encountered a series of obstacles. My requests to conduct research in karaoke bars were repeatedly turned down by every bar owner I talked to. Officials were also reluctant to reveal any what they call secret information to me, contending that their own political position would be jeopardized. Once, as I was singing songs with a couple of political officials and entrepreneurs in the karaoke bar, one of the officials suddenly grabbed my purse and started searching inside. I was too shocked at the moment to ask what he was looking for. In the end, he did not find anything except my keys and the mirror and returned the, the, the purse to me. He appeared much more relaxed after investigating my purse. Later, I realized that he was checking my purse to see if I had hidden a tape recorder or video recorder there. The nature of my research raised everyone's suspicion of my real identity and created barriers in my relationships with them. As time went by, my persistence in conducting the research and my sincerity in interacting with political officials bore fruit. I could see the suspicions subsiding and tensions flowing. Openly acknowledging their suspicion marked a big step out of their previous silence. One political official asked me to, his, to be his daughter's English tutor, and I agreed. In exchange, he introduced me to some karaoke bars to conduct my fieldwork. He himself was a regular customer of these establishments, and therefore familiar with their proprietors. My identity and my research were fully explained to the bar owners. 
I assured them that I would not publicize the bar names to the outside world. Ultimately, I was intensely involved in three karaoke bars as the ethnographic materials in the book were mainly drawn from these three bars. I also visited other karaoke bars and altogether interacted with approximately 200 hostesses from 10 bars. The bar owners attempted to use the situation to their advantage. They seized the chance to ask for favors from the official, who, as a senior government official, controlled municipal resources. One bar owner, for example, hinted that he was interested in renting a plot of land in the city center. Because of the ideal position of this land in the heart of Dalian's large commercial district, the bidding for land user rights would be intense. In the end, the bar owner himself called off the deal, saying that he was sick of constantly having to bribe and kowtow to political officials. Likewise, bosses saw me as a potential resource for their business and other plans. I was frequently grilled for information on business conditions in the United States, the best ways to go abroad, strategies for their children's education, and other matters. Bar owners introduced me to the hostesses as a university student coming from the United States who had come to do social research. As explained, I had come to get a real taste of hostess lives in order to write a book on their lives. My presence was greeted welcomely. The hostesses found it difficult to understand why anyone would want to study them. One hostess warned me that a female college student like me had been raped and murdered by a psychopathic customer while conducting her research. <laughs> I do not know if the story was true or not, but it did shake me up a bit. In the karaoke bars, my initial attempt to interact with hostesses were not successful for a number of reasons. Their attention was squarely focused on business, and they would not talk to me. And the hostesses did not even have time to listen to me because their eyes were fixated on each entering client and they concentrated on the selection process. My own cultural style also marked me as an outsider. They referred to me as glasses and a college student. They ridiculed my student attire and my inability to understand or participate in their sex jokes and talks, and they distanced me from their circle. They did not believe that I would be able to understand lives, their lives, especially their inner turmoil, simply because I was not in their shoes. They insisted that differences in experience and background would prevent me from knowing their pain. They, was, they were extremely wary of their own security, from the assaults by the police, hooligans, and so on, in their dangerous environment. <coughs> they were also cautious in dealing with each other, because Many hostesses have network with some VIPs in the city that might harm the others. So each hostess used a fake name, a fake hometown, and a fake personal story. To overcome these barriers, I decided to increase the amount and intimacy of my interactions with them. I paid the rooming fees to the bar owner and lived with the karaoke bar hostesses in the bars. Thereafter, I became intensely involved in every aspect of their lives as a bar hostess myself, with the exception of providing any sexual services to the clients. It was not my initial intention to research the hostess-client dynamics by directly servicing clients as a hostess. However, objective circumstances mandated that I wait on clients. 
First, my personal profile fits within the range of hostess's typical characteristics. I'm Chinese and I'm female. My fieldwork was conducted during my 28th and 29th years of my life, which put me in the autumn of a hostess career lifespan. This meant that the customer who saw me sitting in the lounge would naturally assume that I was a hostess. Second, I was obliged to minimize the disruption of my research on the bar's normal business operations. According to the bar convention, a hostess can legitimately refuse to perform any sex acts with her customer although refusal can, and often does, spark conflicts between hostesses and clients. These incidents are considered to be a normal part of business. For hostess to refuse to wait on the customer, however, is simply unheard of. This meant that if a customer chose me to wait on him, it would be very difficult for me to refuse. To avoid clashes with the customers, I took certain precautionary steps. First, I did not actively pre present myself to clients. When clients came into the lobby, I tried my best to be inconspicuous, or if circumstances mandated, slipped into a background. Second, within the limits of a hostess's dress code, I did my best to appear conservative. Part of the requirement not to disturb bar business was that I adhered to the basic tenets of hostess's dress code. Thus, I had to wear a skirt, without stockings. Without violating these rules, I chose clothing that I felt would be the least appealing to customers. For example, longer skirts and solemn colors. I was also given a certain amount of leeway. For example, I was allowed to wear glasses. This final aesthetic effect was very successful. In the words of the hostesses, I look like a real nerd. <laughs> Despite all this, some clients still chose me. I asked hostesses for the advice on how to thwart customers' sexual advances. I exercised each of the following tactics while accompanying the clients, and they turned out to be very helpful. One, invite customers to sing songs and play drinking games to divert their attention. Two, compliment customers on their civilized manners. Customers feel the pressure to live up to the standard that is set. Three, enlist the help of the other hostesses if there are other hostess in the, in the private room servicing the same or other businessmen or customers, I would say to the over-aggressive customer, aren't you embarrassed to behave like this in front of so many people? Four, if Aureus fails, use physical force to extract myself from imminent danger and run for help. Despite these precautions, I became broad in several conflicts with customers, which I elaborated in the book. I hope the elaboration in the book gives you some idea of how safety was a central concern in my fieldwork. This was especially true during my fieldwork in the bar located in Dalian's crime-plagued red light district. Living in the karaoke bars, hostesses and high have to maintain constant vigilance against police raids and attacks by thugs from competing bars in the city, including other bar owners and some frequent clients. At night, Three hostesses and I slept on the couches in one of the private rooms rented by customers during operating hours. Every morning before going to sleep, we pushed the couch against the door in case gangsters attempted to break in. In times of danger, we held our breath and turned down the lights, making the room look unoccupied. We escaped danger several times. 
experience of common di uh, adversity gradually brought us together. On one occasion, gangsters walked into the bar, grabbed me by the arm, and started dragging me up the stairs toward a private room intended for hostesses' sexual encounters with clients. The women were also sometimes raped there by gangsters. I quickly realized what was going on, going on that I was in real danger. I riveted my eyes on the bar manager and then the bouncer appealing for help. The gangsters were stopped by the bouncer and the manager who said, quote, she's not hostess here, she's, more, she's my friend, unquote. This saved me from the imminent danger, but the fear remained. In practice, it took the combined efforts of bar owners, bouncers, and hostesses to keep me out of the harm's way. Where safety was a major issue, hygiene was another. Living in the filthy karaoke bar room without bathing facilities, I had lice in my hair and over my whole body. However, by living and working closely with the hostesses in the bar, I gained their recognition and friendship. We share the same danger, bitterness, and jokes from hostessing experiences. Once when we celebrated a hostess' birthday at 2 a.m. in the bar, we were singing songs and playing games until we were all drunk. I drank so much that I could not stop vomiting. <laughs> Some hostess friends carried me to the sofa upstairs and brought me a basin. While I was throwing up, I felt an unfathomable sorrow inside and I began crying. At that moment, hostesses next to me also started crying. One of them said, whenever I'm drunk, I cannot stop crying and crying because of all the pent-up bitter feeling of hostessing clients. Now I can see that you feel the same way. That was the moment when I felt my heart closely connected to theirs, and we became emotionally bonded. That was the moment when their previous disbelief in my ability to understand their feelings was dispelled. That was the moment when they accepted me as one of them. From that moment on, my relationships with the hostesses developed from a straightforward researcher-subject friendship into genuine friendship. The hostesses began confining in me their hopes and fears about their professional and private lives. In good faith, I could do no much more than lend a sympathetic ear and offer my advice. As I became more familiar with their life conditions, I grew increasingly concerned about their violence, abuse, and police raids to which they were routinely subjected. Below, I'll discuss the hand-in-glove rise of the post-socialist state and the sex industry. More specifically, I'll discuss the mutual constitution and dynamic interactions of hostesses, clients, the sex industry, and the state. It challenged the assumption that dichotomized the state and its subjects as polarized entities. The state and the sex industry. The way in which prostitution is intertwined with rural to urban migration, the entertainment industry, and state power is unique to China. State production and management of the entertainment industry characterized prostitution until the Moist era. For thousands of years, the dynasties and states produced, regulated, and sometimes threatened to abolish, yet at the same time profited from prostitution in economic and political terms. 
supporting the sex industry. In post-socialist China, various levels of the government, from national to local, are dependent upon the sex industry. The state profits not only from the sex industry's stimulation of the local economy and its attraction of foreign investment, but, but also from the hostess's financial support to their rural families and villages. In the absence of the state-sponsored welfare system, hostesses' remittances to their rural families alleviate the state's burden by taking care of the elderly and helping develop the rural economy. It was reported that in China, the contribution of the sex industry to the gross domestic product in 1998 and 1999 came in between 12.1 and 12.8%. Initially, under the reform, the girls of karaoke bars and entertainment venues were largely, by some estimates, 80%, supported by state funds spent by officials doing quote-unquote state business. In the city of Dalian, state funds were used to support the early rise of the sex industry. In other places, in 1990s, in Fujian, prostitutes were discovered in a hotel run by the People's Liberation Army. In Guangzhou, prostitutes were discovered in a guest house run by the Provincial Women's Federation. In Shanghai, in 1994, both the Public Security Bureau and the People's Liberation Army were intensely involved in operating karaoke clubs and brothels. In addition to the customers paying with state funds, the other large constituency has been the local police force, which is allowed free entry in exchange for securing the proper permits and ignoring legal violations. So just now we talked about how the state is supporting the sex industry. Now the secondly, I'll talk about how the state targets the sex industry. So you see the contradiction there, which you know, crystallizes the hypocrisy of the state. While the state supported the sex industry, at the same time, the karaoke bar was the target of state law and police raids or crackdowns. Since 1989, with the appearance of karaoke bars, the state has maintained a permanent nationwide anti-pornography campaign to ensure security and state control. The campaign is aimed at cultural purification and the creation of a spiritual civilization. The erotic company of hostesses, pornographic TV shows, erotic performances, and prostitution is condemned as cultural trash and that this destabilizes state rule and the socialist system. The main responsibility for the mainstream state policy regarding karaoke bars were divided between the Bureau of Culture and Public Security Bureau. <coughs> These two agencies represented the government's dual strategy of soft and hard administrative measures. Restrictions stopped short of outright ban. Rather, they intended to bring karaoke bars in line with the state-defined socialist culture. Again, you see the, that the state and the sex industry are not separate entities. First, I'll talk about the state's Bureau of Culture. The Bureau of Culture was responsible for managing karaoke bars according to a socialist standard of civility and morality. It accomplished this task through a variety of measures. First, they maintained detailed records on the business locations, store names, proprietors, exterior and interior designs, audio and video machines, and other information about the bars. This was the basis for the rest of the administrative efforts to regulate and manage the city's 
karaoke bar scene. Second, strict approval procedures have been introduced. On the surface, the purpose behind these regulations was to ensure the quality of bars. But in reality, they were mostly designed to reduce the number of karaoke bars. Prospective bar owners were discouraged from submitting application by a circuitous approval process that wound its way through a total of five government official bureaus. The Environment Bureau, Bureau of Culture, Public Security Bureau, Bureau Tax Bureau, and the Industrial and Commercial Bureau. In addition, applicants were required to hand in a detailed and comprehensive description of the BARS project, including a diagram of its exterior and interior designs. Even minute details of the structure of the BARS were required to meet government specifications. For example, suite doors had to have transparent windows, no less than 50 times 80 inches in size, and be installed with locks that cannot be locked from the inside. Inside, suites were required to be brightly illuminated and without inner rooms. This is because some karaoke private rooms include a small inner chamber separated from the main room by either a thin wall or a curtain. These spaces were often used to conduct illegal sexual services. Anyway, if approved, a cultural operation license will be issued to the owner for one year. Third, bar owners were required to attend monthly classes organized by the Bureau of Culture to study state policy and the law. Those achieving high test scores were awarded civilized karaoke bar plaques that could be displayed inside the bar. This policy was designed to hone the bar owner's sense of pride as contributors to the socialist cultural market. Inculcated with this new thought, bar owners would take the initiative, as it was believed, to transform their bars into civilized spaces where the lofty sentiments of clients could be nurtured. Fourth, it was also required that karaoke bars could have Chinese, should have Chinese and socialist characteristics. In particular, it should provide Mandarin Chinese songs, healthy and inspiring revolutionary songs, Chinese-style mural wallpaper, Chinese paintings, Chinese-style bar names, and Chinese food, Chinese stacks. The Public Security Bureau. The Public Security Bureau served as a quote-unquote iron great wall, providing the muscle behind state policy. The main vehicle for their in intervention was the anti-pornography campaign, itself a part of a wider, more comprehensive attack <coughs> on the social deviance known as crackdowns. These campaigns lasted for a spurs of three months at a time to be repeated three times a year, strategically centering on important holidays such as National Day and Armistice Day, and events such as the Asia-Pacific Economic Conference. Their techniques were self-described as guerrilla warfare, in reference to the heroic efforts of the communist revolutionaries against the Japanese invaders and nationalists. Raids were divided into several types, including regular raids and shock raids, timed raids and random raids, systematic raids and block raids, daytime raids and night raids. Those units and individuals who performed well measured by the number of arrested hostesses and amount of fines levied received high honors and cash bonuses from the municipal government. Although hostesses fought in a gray area, that is to say, the law does not identify them as either illegal or legal, 
In everyday practice, it is recognized that hostesses provide illegal erotic services and hence are the major target of anti-pornography campaign. Please raise make them both legally and socially vulnerable. If their sexual services were disclosed by their clients to the police, they would be sub subject to extreme humiliation, arrest, fines, and incarceration. Indeed, in their everyday lives, local police constitute a daily fear and terror. Because the police wield arbitrary power, hostesses find it obligatory to obey their sexual demands without monitoring compensation. Local officials not only exploit sexually and economically hostess, hostesses, but also keep spy hostesses as their personal harem. Because the state's anti-pornography campaign or policy is manipulated and usurped by local officials for their own ends, leading to a violent working environment for the hostesses, the women do not disclose their real identities, which makes it more convenient for men to be violent toward them sometimes even to the extreme of murder. It was reported that in the city of Shenyang in 1999, more than 100 hostesses were murdered. In Dalian, their bodies were found murdered on the street, but the police could not identify who they were. When I accompanied my closest hostess friend to her rural hometown, I asked her mother if she was worried about her daughter's safety in Dalian. At my question, her mother's face sank with distress. She kept silent for a long time before telling me that at one point she had thought her daughter had been murdered in Dalian. Contest, complicity, and negotiation. Just now I talked about state policies, soft policies, hard policies. Now I'm going to talk about how these policies are implemented on the ground. It was difficult to translate state policy into practice. The complex interactions between sex industries participants on the one hand and the state agents on the other led to a gap between the theory of policy and the practice of enforcement. Corruption of officials. State policy was distorted and even derailed by the interest-seeking behavior of local officials. Karaoke bars were an important source of extra-legal income. As one official candidate remarked, quote, Karaoke bars and hostesses are our sources of livelihood. We basically cannot live without them, unquote. Officials extracted economic benefits from karaoke bars through a combination of bribes and fines. As another, another official explained, quote, soldiers, here means police, and bandits are always from one family. We depend on bar owners for extracted food, extravagant food and recreation. Without them, we could never live so well. As a matter of fact, in confidential police meetings, whenever high-level official uh, officials declare a police raid for the next day, immediately almost all of the, host the policemen stood up and asked for permission to go to the bathroom, where you can hear them calling their friends on their mobile phones saying, hey, tomorrow at this time, you have to be very careful. And the next day, when the police launched the surprise raid, you know, so-called surprise raid, only those bar owners who did not offer sufficient bribes or be misbehaved get caught and heavily fined. But there are also times when we are ordered to make immediate bar raids in districts not in our charge. In such cases, nobody has their network in a stake, and there's an incentive to arrest and fine as many hostesses and clients as possible. You get a considerable percentage of the fines which makes up the better part of your monthly salary. 
unquote. This quotation shows how state policy was hijacked in the service of officials' personal economic interest. The state, by making exotic services in karaoke bars illegal, created markets for corruption on the part of local officials who are among the greatest beneficiaries of the bar system. Next, I'll talk about bar owners. While local officials were manipulating state policy to exploit bar owners and hostesses for their, for their own gains, bar owners were forced to develop counter strategies. The three bar owners with whom I worked improvised creative measures to counter local officials while still having to share profits through bribery. The owner of the upscale bar in which I conducted fieldwork was a well-known local gangster. During my research there, as a result of one strong anti-pornography campaign, however, a hundred hostesses were scared away, which severely curtailed his bar business. He was furious at the receding business and local officials' restrictions. He expressed his anger and antagonism toward the cult unreasonable people working in the government, and I vowed to fight against them to my death." Unquote. While it is questionable that the bar owner would actually confront the authorities in this way, it does illustrate his anger and frustration. More realistically, he utilized non-confrontational maneuvers, that is, converting illegal bar hostesses into legal employees through shifts of title from hostesses to waitress dress, identity, work sections, and so on. Such a strategy, plus his strong official ties, gained him some leverage at this critical point of the political campaign. The setting of his bar also responds to police raids. The couch could be unfolded into a bed at the request of clients. Many karaoke rooms had adjunct secret bedrooms separated by a curtain camouflaged to look the same in texture and color as the wallpaper. This was designed to prevent discovery in case of a police raid. The bar was also on a constant alert for raids. Equipment was provided to ensure the safety of the bar and all its inhabitants. For instance, an alarm button was set up in each karaoke room so that if police made a surprise visit, the alarm could be activated to alert everybody, allowing them to hide and destroy any evidence of illegal activity. For instance, refilling the beds into couch position. In addition, every staff member carried a walkie-talkie with a long antenna that could be used to communicate with each other during raids and facilitate the coordination of emergency measures. The bar owner's accounts filled with resentment, negotiations, and compliance attest to their efforts to maneuver within the restrictive state system. At the same time, they have to systematically bribe and show deference to local officials who, as state agents, usurp and manipulate the state policy for their own interest and profit. As a result, anti-pornography campaign not only failed to achieve the goals proclaimed in the state propaganda, but further aggravated hostesses' working conditions. Next, I'll talk about gangsters. The low-tier karaoke bar named Romantic Dream was located in an enclave of 26 karaoke bars in a city neighborhood huddled under a suspended railroad. It was known as Red Light District and was notorious for its polluted conditions. 
low-quality clients, and aggressive, hardcore thugs and criminals. While thugs and criminals could be seen in upper-class karaoke bars, their numbers and the level of violence were much greater in low, lower-class bars. Gangsters were involved in attacks on hostesses, plundering and theft of bars, sale of drugs, and even murder. This red light district was first built in 1996. For the first three years of its existence, dead bodies were found lying on the street almost every morning. The police could do nothing about it. During my field work there, I witnessed many bloody fights and saw gangsters roaming the area. The gangsters of Dalian were tough street fighters that were members of numerous criminal organizations. Government <coughs> officials told me that there were close connections between gangsters and the local government that fueled crime and violence in the city. Gangsters were scattered throughout the sex industry, working as owners and bouncers of karaoke bars, disco bars, sauna bars, and other places. They were also involved in the production of women from other provinces and sold ketamine powder, ecstasy, and other kinds of soft and hard drugs in entertainment venues. During the period of World Soccer Cup, they organized illegal underground gambling activities. These activities were less bothered than protected by the police. At times, conflicts between different cliques in the underworld escalated into violence. One such incident occurred between two cliques in a hotel in Samba Square, in the center of the city, in Dalian, in October 2004. One person was knifed to death, one was shot to death, and a number of people were severely injured. When the police arrived, gangsters resisted arrest and attacked the police with knives. In self-defense, the police shot one person to death. After the event, the remaining gangsters escaped. It was these kind of gangsters that hostesses were dealing with on a daily basis. Each bar on the street had to hire a thug as barkeeper. This barkeeper had to be good at fighting. Otherwise, the bar would be forced to close down due to the harassment of roaming gangsters and other thugs on the street. During my research in the bar, I witnessed numerous bloody fights between the bar bouncer, whose name is Bing, bar waiters and gangsters, clients, and passers-by. I saw Bing and bar waiters throw heavy stones and chairs at, at clients' head and some passers-by's head until blood streamed down their faces and their head. The bar owner told me that Bing, after having killed and severely injured many men in previous fights, was once sentenced to death. The bar owner spent a great deal of money to finally get Bing out of prison before hiring him as the bar guard. The, male pre the mere presence of Bing in a bar kept many gangsters and thugs away. According to the owner, if Bing were not in the bar, it would be definitely a mess. Hostesses would be fleeing in fear, and everything would be plundered away by gangsters. Gangsters and other bar owners often came to visit. When they saw pretty hostesses, they dragged them upstairs and raped them. When they saw less pretty hostesses, they slapped their face and beat them up. Hostesses were extremely scared of some of the toughest gangsters and thugs. They would run as fast as they could to escape them. Once I fled along with other hostesses, we climbed up the back wall to the real, real tracks behind the bar, losing our shoes and cutting our feet in the process. It was a very unpleasant experience. 
Most of the bar hostesses have been raped one, once or more times by the gangsters. Almost all of the hostesses, to protect themselves, were connected with one or two gangsters. They frequently joked, quote, we hostesses are relatives of the underworld, unquote. The post-socialist state, this is to conclude, oscillated between targeting and supporting the sex industry. Indeed, the state was connected with the sex industry in both official and unofficial ways. Officially, the state repressed the industry in the form of regulation. Unofficially, the state promoted the industry to foreign investors for foreign investment, and state officials supported it through patronization. These seemingly contradictory relationships both work together and conflicted with each other. They work together pretty well as state officials appropriated the repressive policy for their own benefit. They conflicted with each other as state officials suppressed while at the same time patronized and supported the industry. As a result, an exploitative and violent environment was established in the sex industry through the interplay between the state administrative and cultural power, the agenda of local officials, maneuverings of bar owners, and the violence of gangsters. Thank you very much.